So this is the end of our series on the kingdom of heaven. It was supposed to be on the parables. This really isn't a parable, but there's a metaphor in it. And so I didn't want to include it because this is a very difficult text. But you know what? When you're going through a series, the whole point is you got to do stuff you're, that's hard. You got to do it all. So here we go. Sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, we do not want to hide from tough passages. We want to open our hearts to you and to your word. Holy Spirit, come and minister how only you can, and we will respond as you help us. God, we commit this to you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, Greg was talking about being ready and about the, about the coming rapture. And the way I see the end times, that is the next event coming. After the rapture, while we're in heaven at the wedding feast and being rewarded as the church, there is a time of great tribulation on this earth, after which we come back with Jesus. And what we find in Matthew 25 here is Jesus on his throne with heavenly glory on him. This is an earthly throne. This is the throne of David. He is the descendant of David. This is the time that the Jewish nation will be the head and the, and the 12 apostles will be on 12 thrones. This is, this is the beginning of the millennium. And so these people 
that are gathered, the nations that are gathered, have made it through this time of tribulation, and there's this one last cleansing before the millennial period. And so that's, that's a lot, and you can decide whether you agree with me or not, and you know, read my book, and be mad at me, whatever you want, that's fine. But I want to just draw three very practical things from the text today. And we can agree on these three. If we don't agree on anything else, we can, we, well, we can agree on some of them. We'll see. All right. <laughs> Number one, point one, there will be a separation. Jesus, in his parables on the kingdom of heaven and here with the sheep and the goats, makes it very clear that there will be a separation at the end. The wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 41. This is his explanation of the wheat and the tares. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Then he tells another parable about the fish and the net is going to be the harvest and and the bad fish are going to be taken out. And then he gives this explanation. There's just a few verses later. Matthew 13, 49 and 50. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here again, when he comes, he will come with his angels and the angels will take the goats. And here's what it says, verse 40. Six, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what's up with the the angels? In all three of these passages, it is the angels that are going to weed these out of the kingdom and be the agents by which God puts them into the lake of fire. So I've thought a lot about this. (laughs) I guess that's what pastors do. They think about stuff during the week. Um, So in Hebrews 1.14, it says, he says, who are angels? What are they? What what are are angels doing? It says this, that they are ministers sent by God to serve the heirs of salvation. So so angels are, are helping the human race come to Christ. They are the ones setting up divine appointments. They are the ones, and they are up close and seeing what the human race is doing and how the human race is responding. In Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus is speaking, and he says, he says stumbling blocks are going to come, but woe to those who make any of these little ones that want to follow me to stumble. He said it would be better for them for a millstone to be hung around their neck and thrown into the depth of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And then he says this, for their angels approach the throne of God. The angels report, the angels that are watching over the human race, that see the horrors that human beings do to one another, are the first witnesses, and they are the ones uh, who will be God's agents to throw the goats into the lake of fire. Now, Satan and his angels 
will be dealt with by God himself. He will directly do that. But the, the, other, the angels that have stayed are the ones that are going to bring this judgment to the human race. Now, I want you to notice something. Those that go to the lake of fire are going to a place that was prepared for Satan and his angels. There is a place of punishment prepared for the human race. That place of punishment that was prepared for the human race is called the cross. The cross is where all of God's punishment for our sin was poured out. Jesus took it. Jesus shed blood for it. All of God's wrath against our sin has already been poured out for us on the cross. So, so angel, we all start out as goats, folks. Sorry. <laughs> and angels are, 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 are busy alongside the church and the drawing of the Holy Spirit to bring people to the cross where they receive forgiveness and cleansing and God's gift. So if you reject the cross, you reject God's offer again and again and again and again and again in your whole life, then you're going to have to go to a place that wasn't prepared for you. It's not even for you. It's the place that Satan and his angels were supposed to go. But you're going to end up with them because you rejected God's offer and all of the work that angels did to try to bring you to that place of accepting Christ. There will be a separation. Secondly, the separation will be permanent. There will not be universal salvation. Throughout the centuries, Christians have tried to use this Bible to say that God loves people so much that in the end, everybody will be saved. And, and they use verses and, and whatever. Uh, most recently, um, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, and it was about universalism. The, in the end, Jesus's blood will be effective for everybody, and those that were in hell will come out of hell, and everybody will be saved in the end, and isn't that wonderful? That, here's, here's the problem. It's heresy. It was heresy in the fifth century, declared heresy. In 1988, there was an American evangelical council that once again said universalism is heresy. And then in 1995, there was a British council that once again said universalism or the idea that everybody will be saved in the end, so don't even worry about it because everybody will be saved. Not, it's not true. In Hebrews 6, 2, it says that eternal judgment is a foundational truth for Christianity. However, those same two councils in 1988 and 1995 gave two different positions that are both acceptable for evangelicals. Both are based on the Bible. It's concerning the nature of hell and that we can agree to disagree on exactly how hell works. One position is what I call the traditional position of eternal conscious torment. This is traditionally the, the view of most of the church is that hell is a place of conscious torment that will go on and on and on and on for all eternity. 
I am very familiar with this view because I held it for 25 years. That was my view of hell. I can't tell you the whole story, but I went through a, a, a change and met with our elders and talked to the elders and eventually wrote a book. And I'm just going to give you the short, the very short version. The second view, it's called conditional immortality. And what this one says is that the unbelieving go into the lake of fire. They experience conscious torment for all of their sins against humanity, but for their rejection against God, they are eventually annihilated in hell and exist no more. Now, it seems like the difference is on the nature of hell, but it's really about the nature of human beings. So here is, here is the question. Were we created with eternal life? And so if, if we were created eternal beings, if being in the image of God means we are eternal beings, obviously, and we can't be destroyed, then we have to go somewhere. So if you go to heaven, it's, it's, and if you go to hell, you, you're, you're, you were created eternal. So sorry, you're going to be consciously tormented forever. Or... Were we created not with eternal life, but created for eternal life? Were we created in the image of God, but not automatically having eternal life, but, but that our best destiny would be for eternal life? And so there are two trees in the garden. One of them is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the second is the tree of life. And when they don't eat of the tree of life, what it says is God puts angels at the garden in Genesis 3.22 is here's why. So that they don't eat of the tree of life and live forever. They did not, it was not God's plan for them to live forever apart from him. Apart from the tree of life, they are not, in my, in my opinion, eternal beings. So, where did we get this? Where, how did the traditional position get to we're, we're eternal beings? Well, Tertullian and Augustine after him, when they talked about the immortal soul, they didn't quote the Old Testament, they quoted Plato. It was Greek philosophy that believes in the eternal soul, but that became part of the traditional position that were created eternal beings. Now, when you take that out, and you no longer have a bias that we're automatically eternal, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of scriptures about the final state of the lost makes more sense. Jesus and the apostles use many words of what's going to happen to the lost eventually. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Paul says the wicked will perish. Peter says they will perish like the animals do. Perish is, the, is one word that's used about the final state of the lost. Second one, destroy. Jesus, Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who after the body is dead will destroy 
both body and soul in hell. Hell is a synonym for the lake of fire. There is another word, Hades, which is a holding tank that no one gets annihilated in Hades. Hades is a waiting place. Hades is eventually thrown into the lake of fire, but you don't need all that. If you want all that, read the book. Third word, burned up. Matthew chapter three, verse 12. John the Baptist says the Messiah is gonna come and at the end of the age, he's going to bring his wheat into the barn and the chaff is going to be burned up by eternal or unquenchable fire. The fire is eternal. The fire will go on forever and ever as a reminder, but that which is in the fire will be burned up, consumed. Hebrews 11, 27, it's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and those who, this is, those who fall away will be consumed in that fire with the adversaries or the enemies of God. And then the last word, death. Uh, Revelation 20, I think it's verse 14, yeah. That the lake of fire is the second death. They have died once, but they get, everybody gets back their body. Even the wicked get back their bodies and then they're judged. And if their name is not in the book of life, they go into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Now, here's how it works. If you already believe that we're eternal beings, that's called confirmation bias, then perish can't mean perish. Destroy can't mean destroy. Burned up can't mean burned up. Consumed can't mean consumed. And death can't mean death. Because it can't mean that because we're eternal. But once you take that away, the straightforward meaning of all of those words is there. You say, well, Pastor Tom, it says eternal punishment. It says eternal judgment. Yeah, that means, that means it's irreversible. It means that it's going to let, the, the judgment is not going to be reversed at any time. It, its effects last forever. You go through the New Testament or just read my book, every single verse on hell and conscious torment has to do with our sins against humanity. The sin of rejecting Christ, of rejecting God, is that we will perish, be destroyed, be burned up, be consumed, and die a second time in the lake of fire. Now, you can, people believe differently than me. Probably lots of you believe differently than me. Can we still be friends? Can, can, we, can we agree to disagree? Can we... In essentials unity, the essential is there is a hell that to be feared. There is a place of conscious torment where justice will come after we live. In non-essentials liberty, the nature of hell, the nature of human beings, we can agree to disagree and still go to the same church. Praise God. Okay. The first church, or the first service, I said, do, do you guys still love me? And one guy said, yep. <laughs> so that was encouraging thinking of inviting him to coffee this week. All right. Point three, being a sheep looks like something. First John 4, 21. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, it looks in this passage like 
we're saved because of what we do, that the sheep are saved because of what they do. Nope, 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 nope. The sheep are saved because they're sheep. They do what they do because they're sheep. The goats are lost not because of what they've done. They're lost because they're still goats. They are punished for what they haven't done. But the reason why they don't make it is because they're still goats. So what is Matthew doing in this passage? He's saying this. Being a sheep has to look like something. It has to affect your heart for humanity. You cannot say you love God and have an unchanged heart towards humanity. We have seen this all the way through Matthew. The main thing he's concerned about is deception. The people are going to say there's something and then find out they're really not that thing. I must love my brothers and my sisters. This is the proof that I am really a sheep. So, and then here is the test. Your love for the least of these. Now, why, why is that the test? Why isn't the test our love for the best of these? So, here's why it's hard. We're called to love everybody. So, you are called to love the best of these. But here's the problem. When you love the rich, when you love the popular, when you love the beautiful... When you love uh, those that have everything going their way, it's very hard to know whether you are loving them for their own sake or because they can do something for you. They They could give you a gift. They could give you a promotion. They could validate you if they're if you're in their group. And so it's it's hard when you're loving the best of these. It's hard to know, do I really love them or do I love me? And I'm just, I love them because they can do stuff for me. And Jesus actually said this. He said, said, if you love those who love you and you greet those who greet you, he said, you're doing the exact same thing the Gentiles are. That's not going to set you apart. But I'm calling you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. This is what is going to set you apart. It's going to be your love for the unlovable that can't pay you back. This is what you, we need to use as our measure. Do I, do I really love people? Is my heart open to the least of these? So I want to just tell you what a pleasure it has been to pastor this church. In October, sometime early, maybe it was early November, we had some ladies come and do these shoe boxes for the third world. And you guys filled up hundreds of these shoe boxes to go all over the third world and bring joy and Christmas to many. And then literally the week that those shoe boxes were due, Andy and Jenny came and presented the need at the Northport Packer apartments and they had a record amount of gifts that needed to be bought this year 500 gifts and we were going into that last week we were over a hundred short and I'm like Greg and I have a special fund that the elders approved that we can give without any red tape we just we can just get it just give it and uh and I'm just like Andy you tell me how many gifts are left and we're gonna 
We're gonna, we're, we, wanna, we wanna make sure that every kid, every family gets a gift. And so, but they wouldn't get back to me. And so I call, I leave a message, I send an email. And finally, Jenny gets back to me. She says, Pastor Tom, I'm so sorry. Here's what happened. All the gifts were taken except for 20. And other people gave us money, way more money than we needed to buy the last 20 gifts. So we don't, we don't need any extra help. Amazing. So the very day that I find that out, Alice and I are going with a, another pastor and his wife. We're going to an event, a pastor's dinner. And I ask about their church and he just, he does, he's just sharing. They've got a very high rent payment where they are and they have gotten behind in their payments. And, uh, and but he talked to the owner and the owner said, if you can get X amount by December 31st, I will cut off a lot of this this debt. And so I'm in the car. I've just got this money that we've saved by not having, I said, we want to be the first ones to give. Here's what what we're going to give. And then I called a pastor, another pastor in town, and I said, here's what we're doing. Can you help too? So two other churches came together with us, and all of their debt is paid. I just love being, I love being at this church. All right, number four, point four, we need to be saved from all our sins. So usually when we think about sin, we think about sins of commission. Commission is when God has told you not to do something and you do it. And so we've got sins of commission all the way through Matthew, you know, to, it's, it's breaking the moral law for you to be angry and hold anger at somebody in your heart you've already murdered, for, for you to carry lust for a woman in your heart you've already committed adultery, and that this moral law is, is held up, and it can't, and the moral law can't help us. It only exposes us. The moral law has no sympathy it makes no allowances. Well, you were tired and you were, no, the moral law is just the moral law. And, and what it does is it makes us all guilty before God because we've all broken. You break one part of it, James says, and you've broken the whole thing. So everybody is guilty before the moral law. So that's bad enough. I mean, I think we all need a savior just from the sins of commission. But then there's this whole another group of sins called sins of omission. All of these listed in Matthew 25 are sins of omission. When you know the right thing to do and you don't do it. You don't open your heart to the prisoner, to the hungry, to the to the needy, to the that that all of these are sins of omission. And I'm I'm wondering if the sins of omission might even be more than the sins of commission. So there's a guy. In Luke chapter 10, he's a scribe. Scribe means he's an expert in the law. And he comes to Jesus and he says this, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Tell me what I need to do. So Jesus says this, how do you read the law? And he says, well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this, do that. Do that and you'll live. You got eternal life. Just do that. But the scribe wants to justify himself. So he says, who is my neighbor? 
And then Jesus tells this horrible story about who his neighbor is. He said, let me tell you a story. He says, there's a Jewish guy on his way up to Jerusalem and he gets beat up by robbers. He's, he's, he's stolen from, he's left for dead. And then a priest sees him and walks right past him. And then a Levite sees him and walks right past him. And then this other guy comes who's a Samaritan. Well, Samaritans hate Jews and Jews hate Samaritans. But this specific Samaritan feels compassion for this man. And he goes and he kneels beside him and he takes out wine and oil and starts pouring it into his wounds and he revives him enough to get him on his donkey and then he takes him to this inn and then he says to the innkeeper, you take care of him and all of everything you expense, all expenses that you have for his care, I will pay you back when I return. And then he turns to this scribe and he says, which one of these was a neighbor? The scribe is, I mean, this is just a horrible, horrible thing. And he's like, the one who had mercy. And Jesus is like, yeah, do that and you'll live. So if you want to make it by doing stuff, um, all you have to do is keep the law. You have to keep the moral law and you have to keep, you have to, you have to do everything God wants you to do all the time for everybody around you. And then you will make it because you fulfilled the law perfectly. Praise be to you. <laughs> so that's one way you can be saved is be good enough. <laughs> no one's going to get saved that way, folks. No one, you, you're not going to get eternal life by something you do. So there's another way to read the Good Samaritan. And that's allegorically. Let me explain. They accused Jesus in John chapter 8. He says, are, they said to him, are you not a demon-possessed Samaritan? I mean, they, they just had the worst possible words for who Jesus was. So he was accused of being the Samaritan. And I want you to think about the good Samaritan allegorically for just a moment. So the human race has been knocked out and robbed and is laying on the side of the road and could do nothing for itself. The priest represents all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all the animal sacrifices, and he can do absolutely nothing to help the human race. And the Levite represents the law, those who have the law. And we, as I've already said, the law can't help us. The law only exposes us. But then Jesus came and he came down from heaven and he got real close to us. He kneeled down real close and he took the wine out. The wine represents his blood. And he washed us of our sin. And then he took the oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. He is the anointed one. And he started pouring oil into our wounds and he revives us and he does for us what no human being can do. He saves us by his own grace, does work in us that only God could do. No man could do it. Only he could do it. Then he puts us on his donkey, on his donkey, and he takes them to this inn. And he says to the innkeeper, take care of him until I return. And when I return, I will reward you for everything you've done for his care. I want to submit to you that the inn is the church. 
that Jesus himself is saving people by his shed blood and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But when he gets us saved, how many know we're still broken? We're still kind of a mess. We can't even walk. We're still on the donkey. And so he brings them, he brings them to his, his church and says, now I want you to love on these people. I want you to, to, to remind them about the blood and the oil, and I want you to, to minister, and whatever you do for them will be rewarded when I return. And so, this is God's in. Jesus is the only one that can save us, guys. Every one of us need to be saved. If we were held accountable for our sins of commission or omission, every one of us would be lost. But Jesus came to make us his sheep.